Shabbat Shalom and welcome to the Muslim household. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. As I light our Shabbat candles to set apart this special gift for our family, may it remind us all of the light of Messiah that shines in us and in our home. As I cover my eyes, may we be reminded that before Messiah opens our eyes, we cannot see the glories and the joy of all on which his light sheds understanding. With my hands, I spread the light of the candles throughout our home to express my desire as a wife and mother that the light of Messiah and the joy of his Shabbat rest be spread throughout our home. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu malach haolam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu lehiot or legoyim v'natan lenu et Yeshua mishikenu or haolam. Blessed are you, Adonai our Elohim, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by His commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now for the kiddush. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai our Elohim, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now, for the blessing over the bread. Amotzi lechem in haaretz, we give thanks to Yah for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Amotzi lechem in haaretz, Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. And now, the blessing for the wife. Adonai, my Elohim, thank you for the incredibly wonderful wife that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May she be, as it says in your word, a woman of valor, more precious than jewels in whom my heart may trust, and my fortune is found. Amen. The blessing for the husband. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the husband that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May he be, as it says in your word, a man whose delight is in your Torah. May he be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Amen. Blessing for the children. Behold! Children are a gift of Adonai. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Blessing for the sons. Yisimcha Elohim ke'ephraim v'ki menasheh. May Elohim make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the sons that you have given me. May they be, as it says in your word, men whose delight is in your holy Torah, gracious, compassionate, and righteous, fearing no evil, but with a steadfast heart, 
trusting in you. Amen. And the blessing for our daughters. Adonai, our Elohim, we thank you for the daughters that you have blessed us with. May they be, as it says in your word, women of valor, more precious than jewels, arrayed in strength and majesty, and whose mouths open with wisdom so that the teaching of kindness may be upon their tongues. Amen. Shabbat shalom, shabbat shalom, shabbat shalom. May the peace of Adonai be with you always. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Adonai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai hamvorach le'olam va'ed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha, Ba'elim Adonai. Micha Mocha, Nedar Ba'kodesh. Norate Hilot. Oh, save Oh, save Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Olam, Asher natanlanu et derak ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat. La'asot et ha-Shabbat la-doratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. K'shashet yamin asa aronai et ha-Shamayim va'et ha-Raletz uvayom ha-Shvi'i shvat Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem, Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam Vaed. Yeshua HaMashiach, U Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. V'chol levavcha, uv'chol nafshecha, uv'chol meyodecha. V'hayu ha'devarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. V'shinantam levanecha, v'libartabam, v'shivtecha, v'bethcha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech, uv'shuchbecha, uv'kumicha. Uksartam leot al yedecha, v'hayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvishorecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. You with a melody, you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies. Bye. 
Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our Erev Shabbat service. And this week's Torah portion, it comes from Vayetzi. We're still in the book of Genesis, learning more about the life of Jacob, our father. Our portion begins with the conflict of, of, uh, between Esau, in which that he's now received the birthright blessing from his father Isaac and Jacob or excuse me, Esau knows about that, is very upset, and is now threatening the life of Jacob. So Isaac and Rebekah agree that Jacob has got to flee, so they decide to send him back to where Rebekah originally was from, and to back to Padam Aram, as it's called, and to get out of the country away from his brother Esau, who wants to do harm to him. So our portion begins with, and Jacob departed by Yetzi, and he's on his journey back. Now, part of the journey that we have in that portion is what's called um, Jacob's Ladder, in which that on the journey, Jacob, uh, we think, was in the area of what is modern-day Bethel, and that he took a stone and he made it into a pillow where he slept that night and he had a dream. And in the dream... There was this ladder that came down, and he saw angels ascending and descending on this ladder, and he could see that Almighty God was up at the top. 
And so he considered that to be a very in, a special place uh, there at Bethel, uh, which means the house of God. And, and then he made his journey on into Aram, where when he gets there, you know the story, he met Rachel for the first time, and he made a huge mistake. He sat down and talked with her for a couple of hours and shared the, their stories back and forth with each other and suddenly discovered what were the connections between the two of them. And since she was so beautiful and so forth, he fell in love with her immediately, kissed her, and boy, did that cost him. Uh, because when he gets back to Laban, her father, why Laban agrees that he can stay there and live with them and work for Laban for the hand of Rachel. And specifically, you know, part of the story, he labors for seven years, you know, tending Laban's flocks and prospering his flocks, only to have the wedding, and suddenly he wakes up the next morning and he's got Leah in the bed with him, and that he had been tricked into marrying Leah. And then he had to work another seven years, again, for Rachel to be his wife. Well, in the course of all of those years, why the two wives begin to, and handmaids, they begin to have children for Laban, or excuse me, for Jacob. Get Jacob and Laban confused here. Uh, and Jacob starts raising his children. And so we go through this Torah portion, the naming of the children, and how do they get named, and so forth. And there's a very powerful remez or hint, a uh, clue in here that has to do with the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah coming um, here on the earth, and it's, uh, it ties all into the, the greater biblical themes. Our Haftor portion is going to address and take note of that Jacob had to labor for his um, wife. And so let me take you to Hosea uh, chapter, Hosea chapter 12, and let's begin at verse 12. Some of the things listed starting at verse 13, I think that's a slight typo, should be verse 12. Uh, Hosea 12, verse 12, it says, Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife. For a wife he kept sheep. And it's acknowledging this is how Jacob got his wives. This was a very laborious task that he had to do. He had to deal with the conflict of his uncle Laban. And as the story unfolds for us, it turns out that Laban is not, he may be family member, but he's not taking, treating Jacob very well. In fact, uh, Laban favors his own sons uh, considerably compared to Jacob, and who's the son of his sister, Rebekah, and that he basically cheats him. In the course of working for him, he had agreed on a wage, but then Laban would come back and change his wages on him, and I'm assuming would change his wages to decrease them, to make it even more difficult for Jacob, even as he acquired some flock, and in fact part of the negotiation with Jacob to continue working was, I want some of the flock you know, to become my flock. And that's where we had the agreement that uh, Laban would keep all the white sheep, but uh, Jacob would receive the sheep that were 
black that were spotted, speckled, multicolored, and he would receive those to be part of his flock, and he would separate them out. Now, one of the things that is mentioned in there, which I, I'm not quite sure how this really worked, but the Bible says this is what happened, was that when it came time to where the two flocks would be together, uh, that um, Jacob would intentionally take the poplar trees that were in this area and he would strip part of the bark down on it so it made for stripes and black and white. There was contrast in the color and it was kind of like there was all this contrast of black and white. And there is, the, the, this is the belief. Most creatures, including human beings, we do this. We have this inherent bias, that's actually what it's called, where we have an inclination that we will choose to go with and congregate with people we think we look like and we think they look like at us. Uh, they've done this experiment with children in which that they uh, set a child down and um, they have an orange and a blue shirt and they announce to the child that you can have one or the other but you have to pick one. And so they'll pick a color of a shirt. Say they pick the blue shirt. Now they get the blue shirt on, they walk around, they're playing in the blue shirt, and then they set them down again, and they say, okay, we have two children that would like to play with you. Who would you like to play with you? And one of the kids has an orange shirt on, and one of them has a blue shirt on. Guess who the kids choose? The one that has the blue shirt, just like the one they have. We, as human beings, we congregate in communities with people that we identify with based on appearance or thought or whatever the case may be. Um, and I know there's a lot of anti-racist people that say, well, this is racial pre uh, pre um, prejudice and so forth, but it's a normal human trait. It's even in the animal kingdom in which the animals will choose that which they see around them and think that's who they want to be with. Well, apparently, Jacob strips the bark down on these poplar trees where that everything looks like it's black and white or multicolored. It's not uniform white. And he got the strong sheep of Laban to then father uh, the sheep of, of um, Jacob. And they're in this area where, well, the sheep looks like everything else I see around me, so that must be what I am. And so they would, they would um, do the animal husbandry work, you know, associated with it. That's the best explanation I can give to you. But apparently Jacob understood this and was able to work with it. And as a result, Jacob's flock became very strong. It was kind of the best of Laban's flock and the best of his flock as he began to build his flock for it. And uh, it goes into the fact that Jacob was trying to uh, build up his flock to come back. That was because the wages were being cut and he's gonna make his, he needs to make his way back to the land again. In fact, the latter part of the portion is about him coming back uh, with his family, coming back to the promised land 
and having to confront Esau that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks uh, so that he can come back into the land. There's a lot more detail that goes with it. But in any case, this particular portion, it addresses all the conflict. The Haftor portion addresses the conflict, how this whole thing got started. And how well, it got started is he had to flee, that he worked for a wife, and he kept sheep. Those are the three components that was Jacob's life in those days. And he was there doing that for 20 years uh, as a part of the process. Now, the rest of this portion in the Hoftor portion continues on. I want to read a little bit further from Hosea, uh, beginning at verse 13. But by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach on him. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them from the work of the craftsmen. And they say with them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud, like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. So let's step back for a moment and let's address what is the prophet talking about. In the history of Israel, and this came about after King Solomon had died, the King Solomon's son, who became king, Rehoboam, had all of the kingdom of Israel that King David had put together, Solomon had overseen. And he was counseled by the older men to um, relax the taxation effort that had been done on the people of Israel. Solomon had used that monies to build up the temple, had used that to build up his stables and all the different things he had built around the land. And they said, you should give the people a break. Well, the young men of Rehoboam said, no, you should tax them even more and make your kingdom even more than Solomon did. Well, he decided to take the counsel of the younger men and immediately there was a breach. Immediately there was a breaking away uh, from it. And part of the comparison is the breaking away that took place between Esau and Jacob. Jacob left. Well, Ephraim, the house of Ephraim, the house of Israel left. And another king rose within Ephraim called Jeroboam. And when I mean left, I mean not only did they cease to identify with the house of Judah, which is Rehoboam, they actually built false temples, one in Bethel and one up in the land of Dan, and so that the people of Israel wouldn't go to Jerusalem any further on the feast days, they would go to those locations, spend their money there, instead of bolstering um, the um, uh, King Rehoboam and his economy. And they further broke away, and when they broke away, they not only broke away from their, the, the rest of the people of Israel, but they broke away from the Lord. And so Hosea is the first prophet of the prophets that we have in the Bible, who came and first prophesied to 
the house of Israel saying, what you have done is very inappropriate. And that it's going to cost you. Your ego is puffed up. You know, you're in opposition with your brothers. This is going to cost you dearly. And if we fast forward through what Hosea has specifically talked about, he says that when you're taken captive by your enemies, oh, by the way, House of Israel was the first one taken captive by the enemies, that they would lose their identity as even belonging to Israel. If you go back to Hosea chapter 1, where the whole book is really laid out, Hosea has a wife who's a harlot. And he takes her back, and he fathers three children. And the names of those three children are the prophecies that were put upon the house of Israel. Literally, the name of the children is the prophecy of them. And one of the children was called Lo-Ami, not my people. So that when B'nai Ephraim, the house of Israel, went into captivity, they completely lost their identity as that they were part of Israel. And that is exactly the dynamic of what we have going on today. We're all in the same struggle that started with Jacob and still continues to this day. Now, I want to leave you with an encouraging word. If you will, take me back. let me take you back to Hosea chapter 1. Because after giving this incredible, terrible prophecy that Hosea gave to Israel, he concluded by saying this, and this is chapter 1, the very last verse, verse 11. And he says, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. And they will appoint themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. It's talking about the final redemption. It's talking about the greater exodus. There's a day coming when Judah and Ephraim will be together. They'll have one leader, Messiah Yeshua. And the Lord is going to render judgment on the whole world, which has been part of the dynamic of all the difficulties that we have had uh, for it. So he gives us the conclusion. This whole thing's going to get resolved when we have the day of the Lord and the Messiah comes back and gathers us all up for his kingdom. But let me back up one more verse, one more phrase, to tell you how he set that all up. You know, they were called low me, not my people. But he speaks the future, and he says this in verse 10, the last sentence there. It says, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. That is what would be said of the people who don't know their identity, that they're part of Israel. That phrase, sons of the living God, is a very Christian expression. You know, Christians don't have any problems saying that about themselves or one another. We're sons of the living God. Because that's very close to an expression that Yeshua himself said of us. So as a result, that's the group that's going to be part of this future destiny at the conclusion here. Hosea spoke this terrible prophecy upon all of Israel, but at the same time, he spoke of good things would be happening in the end. And he's summarizing it by saying, remember the struggle our family's been having 
it started with Jacob having to go flee, and it, and it ended up with him having to work for sheep. That's how he got his wives. That's where we all came from. And that's how we, now we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, you know, for us here. So that's our portion for this Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of the Gospel of John, uh, to chapter 1. Hold your finger at verse 43, where our Brett Hadashah portion will begin, and let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time once again to study your word and your instruction. And Father, through the testimony of Yeshua, Father, I pray that we are edified and strengthened in our most holy faith. Uh, this week, as we uh, connect the Old and New Testaments together, and as we look forward to whatever it is that you are teaching us and encouraging us in our hearts, Lord, with your word for this Sabbath. We thank you for all of these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. Our Torah portion this week is Vayetzi, which means Andy went out. This is the story back in the book of Genesis when Jacob, after receiving the blessing from his father Isaac, is sent out from his father and his mother's house and flees, basically, his household, and then goes and journeys to find his uncle Laban, who is his mother's brother, to where he might uh, find a wife and build a family there. This is him being sent out, of course, because his life was being threatened by his brother, who was not very happy for um, Jacob receiving the firstborn blessing as opposed to the firstborn Esau. And there's a very interesting thing as we look and as he's leaving and departing his family's house, of course, that uh, he doesn't appear to have any belongings with him when he leaves. This is some, some have questioned uh, whether this was he had to flee in haste so he wasn't able to be sent away with any sort of money, property, belongings. There's also a story, uh, there's a Jewish legend that a son of Esau actually came and robbed him along the, along the way, along the road. Needless to say, our patriarch, Jacob, in the, the father of all the children of Israel, his name being changed to Israel at a later date, that he is there without anything. And after being receiving the blessing from his father, he then finds him play, himself on a mountain on a place called Bethel, where he lays his head upon a stone, and the Lord reveals to him in a great dream. And this is where we have the story of Jacob's ladder and the dream that he sees, and that God confirms this covenant with him at this time that he sees this dream and this ladder, and it specifically says of this ladder that he sees in the account in Genesis, that he sees the angels, the messengers of the Lord ascending and descending upon this ladder. Now, this connects directly to the one traditional reading for the Brit Hadashah portion. This is the story very early on in the Messiah's ministry when he goes and he is starting to bring in disciples. He begins his ministry. And now he, the Messiah himself, he hadn't done anything up to this point. He simply had been walked. He'd been declared by John the Baptist to, to be the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. He goes to other men and he says, come, follow me, put down everything that you're doing, come and follow me. And this is how the Messiah early on in his ministry accumulates disciples. Well, one of the stories that we have of this taking place comes from the first book of the Gospel of John. And we have a very interesting story here. And obviously, as we read this story and as we come to some of the things that the Messiah is saying, we see immediately where the connection to our Torah portion comes. So right now, John 1, starting at verse 43, this is the story as it goes. 
The following day, Jesus, Yeshua, wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from uh, Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Yeshua saw Nathanael uh, coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Yeshua answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answering and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Yeshua answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And and he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is one of these interesting interactions, of course, where the, the Messiah speaking, Yeshua, speaking to one of these young men that are coming along the way, and he says very little words to them, but suddenly they immediately have this heart to believe and to follow after him, calling him rabbi, and they saying, I'll go wherever you, you go and call me. And Nathaniel, you can see a little bit of his personality right here from the get-go when he says, you know, he's the one that says this curious line when he says, Yeshua of Nazareth, he's the Messiah, the one that Moses spoke of. And he's like, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is, of course, a fulfillment of prophecy uh, that came before where being a Nazarene was not a compliment to anyone back in the first century. Nazareth was not a great place to be or to be from. It was kind of like it was kind of a slum or a neighborhood that you didn't want to be known to, to, to come out of. And that one of the things that's very interesting is that this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy, that he would, that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Now, in the Old Testament, that prophecy wasn't specific and say that he would come out of Nazareth. No, but the prophecy from our prophet Isaiah does say that he would be despised, that he would, be, that he would not be looked upon with great esteem, and that that is literally what it would have meant in the first century to come out of Nazareth. So this is where, you know, Nathaniel being this one who he spoke this thing about being, coming from Nazareth, and truly it was a fulfillment of prophecy. But immediately he's kind of like, he's, he's kind of questioning, like, are you sure? Like, this, this is the one? And then when Yeshua sees him for the very first time, he pays them this incredible compliment. He says, behold, an, an Israelite in whom is no deceit, no deceit, as in he's not, he's not lying, he's not mincing any words here. It's almost as if like the Messiah knew this is what he said. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that he is, uh, he's an honest person. He's not a, he's, he's not a liar. This is, this is a compliment to somebody that it's like, hey, he's just going to speak frankly and speak what is on his mind. But then Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? And he said, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, there's many... Uh, interesting, sim- lots of symbolism when it comes to anything mentioning of a fig tree, that a fig is sometimes considered the fruit of judgment. I've spoken many times before, I believe the fig was the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so I believe there is something much deeper going on in this interesting connection that it happens that Nathaniel happened to be sitting under a fig tree and that there's obviously something building here. There's a, there, there's a kingdom connection happening here with the Messiah and these disciples as they, as they come in. 
And then he, and Nathaniel, after hearing this, seeing this, he believes this, he senses in the spirit of the man, Yeshua, as he's talking to him. And he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And he, he agrees with him that he's talking to the Messiah. He's talking to the one who was prophesied to come, who would, who, who would be a great teacher and who would do all of these things. And it's very interesting, the response that Yeshua says, and, and he, he kind of says this. He's like, I haven't done much yet. The Messiah says, he, he says, I, I saw you under a fig tree, and yet you believe? And he says, you'll see greater things than these. Now, that's, that's sort of the line that you would then think it's like, all right, yes, this is the Messiah. When he's saying and proclaiming something like, what we'll see greater things in the following of him and believing in him, that, yeah, I mean, th- th- this is something that was profound, that's something very Messiah-like that he would say. And he says and assures him again, assuredly, I say to you that you'll see heaven open up and angels of, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Very interesting line here. Now, this is the only time in Scripture, the only two times, I should say, that this concept of angels ascending and descending comes from, and this, of course, connects back to the story of our father Jacob and the ladder and the vision that he saw at the place called Bethel. Many of us believe that he was, that, that when he laid his head, he laid his head at the place where the Temple Mount is, where basically the place where Jerusalem would stand, where the Temple would stand, and that that is, uh, sometimes I've lovingly referred to it as the interdimensional terminal between heaven and earth, that that's where business happens, that's where God comes and puts His place, puts His name, and that that is the place, Bethel meaning the house of God, and that that is where Jacob laid his head. This is a little bit in contrast to there is another city north of Jerusalem that is called Bethel, and so we believe that that might have been a name that might have been used multiple other times, but I believe that this is a connection back to that place and where Jacob saw angels ascending and descending in this spiritual vision. Now, any of these young men who grew up knowing anything from synagogue or these stories or anything, they would have known this story. They would have known this term. Everybody knew, everyone who was of Israel knew that we got the name Israel from Jacob, from our father, the grandson of Abraham, and that he was the one who saw this vision. This is one of the first things that we know happened to Jacob in our scripture, whenever Jacob has now been isolated away from anybody else, he's not with Isaac, his father. He's not with his brother Esau. This is him by himself. And the first thing that happened to him in our narrative of the Bible is this vision and this dream. Everyone would have known this. So this idea that he saw the angels, messengers of God of heaven, ascending and descending upon a ladder, this is a story that goes back to the formation and foundation of Israel itself. Notice again that Nathanael called the Messiah the king of Israel. He says, you are the king of Israel. He was the one who was going to be king over all of Judea, over the Jews, that the Messiah will be a king. But Yeshua, actually, his response is very interesting, and it's a little bit kind of reading between the lines here, that this reference by saying, ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, is that a connection back to Jacob, before Jacob was named Israel. This is the Messiah almost subtly hinting. He's all like, oh, you, oh so you know the story of Israel, and, and, and you're talking about me being the king of Israel. But before Israel was, I am. This is almost what I sort of see and I, I read into what the Messiah is actually saying. By referencing Jacob's dream, he is referencing to a time prior to Israel. 
that He existed before the foundations of Israel. We know later on in the gospel stories and the gospel message that the, one of the Messiah's responses, what He once said, was that before Abraham was, I am. And this was Him speaking as if He was God. He's the Son of God, that before Abraham even was there, He came. He was there before Moses, He was there before Abraham. And this is sort of His subtle way of saying, this, I was there before Jacob, before Israel, because I was the one who, speaking of this vision. He also declares and says, the Son of Man. This is one of the most common terms that is used, that Yeshua Himself uses for the Messiah Himself. And He's making Himself to be the one that is going to be the bridge by calling Himself the Son of Man and talking about and relating, of course, the Son of Man to the ladder that Jacob saw and that the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is a great implication for us to the faith in understanding the role of the Messiah. The Messiah is the bridge between heaven and earth. When He said, later on in the Gospel of John, that no one goes to the Father except through Him. This is the same thing by which no one would traverse heaven and earth except going through Him, because He relates Himself to being that ladder. That bridge, that bridges the gap between heaven and earth, and that the messengers of God ascend and travel based on the Son of Man. Nobody goes to the Father except through Him. This shows in the, the power of the Messiah, the role of the Messiah, that He is that bridge, and that we would see that, and that we would see that, and, and He's saying to, to Nathaniel here, you will see the heavens open up. We might walk this earth, but you will see the, the, the Word of God. You will see God revealed. When you think about the heavens being opened up, you're, you're thinking about the, the revelation of God and mysteries and the power of God, and that He would see these things if He were to go and come and follow Him. And that's, of course, what the disciples did see in the course of the life and the testimony of the Messiah. They saw the miracles of God. And they saw Him, and, and it, obviously pointing all the way to the ascension after the crucifixion, that you see Him rise, go into, go into the clouds, and that this is what the disciples would see, all the way from the very beginning of His ministry. He spoke these things and connected it to the story of Jacob, our patriarch, that, that begins the life of Israel, because the life of Israel is basically the, the prevalent theme throughout the rest of Scripture. We have the kings of Israel listed, the prophets of Israel, and then all the kingdom of Israel, and it all begins with Jacob. He was the man whose name was changed to Israel, how we got the name of this nation, and this is the beginning of the story. Yeshua is connecting and showing that He is the fulfillment of the story of Israel of Jacob, the first thing that he saw in his vision when God reaffirmed his covenant with Jacob, the same covenant that he also made with Abraham and with Isaac before him. That's the traditional portion that, or uh, passage in our New Testament that connects us to the Torah portion for the Brit Hadashah reading. There's a couple other things coming out of our Torah portion, however, that I absolutely want to connect to the testimony of the Messiah as well. And that is this. Going back to our story in the, in the um, Torah portion here, where we, uh, we already heard the reading of it and the, the, the story of how he came to the well, and he comes and he meets, uh, meets some servants there, and he says, hey, do you know Laban? Laban being his uncle, the, the brother of his mom. And they were like, yes, we know of this man named Laban, and he's talking about is it well with him, because this is where he was fleeing to. He's fleeing to the area of Haran, or uh, what we believe to be the area of Syria, 
today, and that he goes and he's trying to inquire, and this is the family that he's trying to connect with as he had to flee his family's house. And then we know the story, of course. He sees Rachel. He falls in love at first sight. He moves this stone from the mouth of the well and, uh, and then so that the flocks could be watered. And he ends up, he kisses Rachel. He says who he is. She flees, goes back to her uncle. And then we have this great little family reunion or family meetup here where he meets Rachel. He desires to marry her, Hutag speaking to his uncle Laban, and that he desires, and so he's going to work for seven, day, seven years for the hand of Rachel. Now, this is the whole thing going back to what I said before. Didn't look like he had any belongings. He didn't have any possessions with him. So he has to go and he's got to earn every bit of anything that he's going to have to his name. He has to earn, and we know the story, of course, of him loving Rachel, but then there's also Rachel's sister, Leah, who is the older, who she loves Jacob. He doesn't love her. And then we have the swindling Uncle Laban who ends up marrying Leah off to him as opposed to Rachel because the wedding happened at night and the bride was likely veiled and there was no lights. And then he, all of these things to basically get Jacob to work for Laban. Now, we know the story, of course. He marries both sisters. We know that Leah was unloved. Rachel was loved. And that then we have the story in our Torah portion here at the end of chapter 29 of Genesis going into chapter 30. We have the birth of the children of Jacob. And it starts to become apparent that God has a plan and a purpose for him to be married to Leah. Because she starts having children. She starts having many children. She has four right off the bat. She's got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And Rachel is barren, unable to bear children. Then we have the, the handmaidens bearing children as well. And so then all totaled, there was 13 children born, 12 sons and one daughter of all of this story. Now, this, in the story, we can talk about the conflict between Rachel and Leah, the sisters, competing for the affection of Jacob thing I always love pointing out in the narrative and in our story, God always had a plan for Leah to be married to Jacob. You can clearly see that in the birth of the children and who was born, and that Rachel, though being loved, she was in all the story, in all the biblical narrative, there is no instance whatsoever of any of Rachel's actions showing that she loved Jacob. Jacob loved her, and that, but, and he cared for her, but there was no return of her back to Jacob. But then you have Leah, the one that is unloved. She clearly has a desire to be with Jacob, to love him. And so we start to see this contrast here. I'm, I actually like to relate it to modern day, our relationship with the Lord. I like to look at it this way, that uh, the Messiah, God, he loves all of those, all of oh, the, the people whom He loves. He, he loves all of His creation. He loves all of His people, even if they don't return it back to Him. He's constantly trying to draw people out of the nations. And there are those who, are, who love the Lord and have a great relationship with the Lord. And then there are those that walk in sin, walk in idolatry, and don't show their affection or, or any reverence back to the Lord. That doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't love them. It means the Lord still desires for them to return, to, to come back and, and to be in His presence and to love Him. And I think that's kind of the, that's a pattern in the relationship between Jacob and Rachel. Though Jacob, Rachel doesn't appear to love him back, he still loved her. Now, but however great things and great miracles happen and great blessings come for those that are faithful to their husband. 
Great things happen to those believers in God who are faithful to their God. That's where Leah comes in. That's what Leah sort of embodies. And great things come through Leah and through the children that are born. The plan of God was for Leah to be born. And you can see that in the birth of her children. Leah bore of Jacob seven children. Seven means the plan of God. And it's this very interesting pattern here that follows the same pattern of the week. She bears six sons. And the seventh child is Dina, who was a twin of Zebulun, the sixth son. So it's like he, she, bears, uh, she bears six sons, and the, and the sixth one is a double portion, and he has a twin, and the only daughter, Dina, is born along with Zebulun. And so we see this beautiful pattern of six plus one in the same way that the pattern of the week occurs, and that there's a great plan of God in the birth of Leah's children. Now, this is where we connect it to the Messiah. We see it in the naming of her sons. All the sons of Leah have a very interesting meaning to them. They each, uh, all of the mothers named the children and usually had a reason or a purpose for the naming of the children. In the case of, say, the first son that was born, Reuben. Leah called him Reuben because, she, because the Lord has looked upon her affliction, and Reuben means see, see a son. Ben means son, and re'eh, or just the, the resh, literally means to see. And so it's like, behold, we have a son. That's the very first son, that was the meaning. And then she then bore Simeon, or Shimon, which is related to the Hebrew word Shema, which means here. And so she named him Simeon, Shimon, because the Lord has heard that she is unloved. And so this is how some of the meanings of these names came. So I've already mentioned Reuben, which means see, a son. Simeon, which means heard or hearing. Then she bears Levi, which means attached or joined to. She bore Judah, which means praise. She bore Issachar, whose name literally means wages. Zebulun, which means to dwell, to dwell together with something. And Dina, the female, is actually the, means the, the bride or embodies the, the, the concept of the bride. And so in those seven children, I can tell you a story that relates to the Messiah. The Messiah, the Son of God. Reuben was the first name. He was the Son. And so I can tell you a little narrative and a story about the Messiah, that the Messiah was the Son of God. And that we are to hear His instructions and listen to His instructions. And we are to become attached to Him so that we join in with His family. And we shall praise Him because He has paid the wages of sin so that we might dwell with Him forever, so that we might be His bride and He is the bridegroom. In the course of that little narrative and that story, I referenced the meaning of the names of Leah's children. Simeon, Heard, Levi, Attached, Judah, Praise, Issachar, Wages, and all in the, in the story and the naming of Leah's children that we can see here in our Torah portion for this week, we can describe what the Messiah has done for us. The Messiah who has paid the wages of sin, that we shall praise Him, listen to His teachings, follow after Him so that we will dwell with Him forever and that we will be His bride with the, at the wedding of the Lamb at the end of the age. What an amazing narrative and story. It's kind of like a summary of what the Messiah is to us. And you can tell that story through the naming of Leah's children. One other story I want to connect here to uh, our New Testament faith is the story by which Jacob has an agreement with Laban when Jacob agrees to continue to labor in Laban's house. And he actually ends up staying there for um, what is said is 20 years. 
20 years that he works, seven years for uh, Rachel's hand, then he ends up marrying Leah, then he works another seven years for uh, Rachel's hand, though they were both married at, this, at the same time. He didn't have to wait seven years to marry Rachel. But they, um, so then he worked for 14 years just for his, his wives, but then he has to work an additional six years for the flocks, for him to accumulate wealth and flocks. And what he does is he proves himself to be a shepherd. Remember, he was a man, of, he was a peaceful man, as it was described of him, contrasting him to Esau. And he takes care of Laban's flocks. And he causes Laban's flocks to grow and to flourish. And what he does is he works out a deal with Laban that he wants to accumulate some flocks for himself. So this is what he does, is he uh, accumulates flocks in a way that he says, look, Laban, I will take all of the striped and spotted and the, the ring-straked and the, the, the uh, kind of the not-so-good-looking sheep I'll take those. Let those become my flock. You can keep all of the, the pure colored ones, the white ones, the black ones, the brown ones, the ones that aren't spotted, aren't striped. You can keep those and let me be able to accumulate some of my, my flocks for my own possession. Because he's trying to say, it's like, I don't want to work for his uncle Laban for that long and for the rest of his life. No, eventually he has to accumulate his own wealth. He already has wives and sons. Now he needs to accumulate flocks and the means to take care of his family. Now we see in the story that some of the that what Jacob did is is because Laban had changed his wages several times and and was trying to swindle Jacob out of some of these things. Jacob kind of played that game a little bit too because he knew apparently as being as good a shepherd as that he was that he would breed the flocks that when there was the strong and the 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 um, the, the strong sheep the the ones that were prize winning sheep that he had put striped branches before them when they ate and when they uh, procreated, so that then the ones who were born were striped and spotted. And so Jacob actually accumulated a stronger flock because he basically manipulated it to where he would get all of the stronger of the sheep. And the more feeble of the sheep and the, the weaker of the flock, he would, they would remain not striped, not spotted, and that those would be the ones that would remain with Laban. So it's fascinating here in this story. Now, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about the flocks that, that Jacob accumulates uh, here in the course of our story? Well, this connects back to those of us, we find ourselves walking in the faith in the Messianic movement or in the Christian movement. We see all of our brethren that come into the flock, into the fold, that we all stand together as a community and a fellowship and we worship the Lord together. We are not, as believers in the Lord, we are not the most pristine members of society that are come into each of our fellowships and congregations and come to find ourselves to be worshipers of the Lord. We all have sin in our life. We all come from different backgrounds, different walks. We are all striped and spotted in our own special, different kind of way in the sense that we are unique amongst the world, as uh, I should say. You know, that we, I've, I've said before as well that we, when you're a leader of a fellowship or a congregation, you can't control who's going to come through that door. Some people will come in through the door and they will be hurting. They will be in need of prayer and counsel and the word of the Lord and encouragement, and they will bring in all of the baggage and the hurt and the scars and the things that they've experienced in their life. They will bring that into the fellowship. You can't control which portion, portion belongs to God. We all belong to God. And what's unique about this is we're talking about the flock of Jacob. We're talking about the children of Israel. 
that they are being described as, the, the, the flock of, of Jacob being described as maybe not the most perfect looking of all the sheep, of all the flocks. Now, this is interesting for us, of course. This goes back, um, and, and this can be related also, to who were the children of Israel when they come out of Egypt, out of slavery. It was a mixed multitude. It was a mixed bag of, of multiple races that all came together and all were adopted in into the family of Israel, into the children of Israel, and that there is a uniqueness in the physical appearance of all the people who would be considered the children of Israel and the children of God. We are all Jacob's flock, unique in our own ways, striped, spotted, speckled, and, 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 and we don't, don't all look like maybe what the world thinks we should look. Is it all about looks and physical appearance? Of course it's not. It's about what's inside our hearts and who we are and who we believe in and that we believe in God. Because God, what He has done is He's shown by taking care of and choosing the children of Israel, you know, the children of Israel that broke all the commandments and they were unruly and they killed every prophet. We, God, He's actually using this example of, look, if the Lord is willing to work with this people and save these people, then there is no person on earth that could ever say, it's all like, oh, well, I'm not good enough for the Lord. No, if the Lord is willing to, to, to bring into His family and His flock, no matter the way that you look, whether you are the world's definition of beauty or not, He is willing to be with you, bring you into His family, into His fold, and love you and make you an inheritor of the kingdom. Now, this isn't me just sitting here and bashing the physical looks of everybody in the Messianic movement or in all of our congregations. What it is, is it's a testimony to who we are before the Lord. There's a passage in the New Testament that I want to point out that relates directly to this idea and this concept. Like I said before, we are all striped and spotted. We all have scars from mistakes that we've made in our lives. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God then, He calls us to be a holy people to love one another, no matter what, what we do or the mistakes that we make. He calls us to do that because what He says is that He will make us pure. He will make us clean. We are all unclean because of sins that we have committed, but He will make us pure. So we now, if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, there is a line and a phrase here that should just pop right out to you that should be encouraging to you in your faith and in your walk. Ephesians chapter 5 Let's start at verse 25. This is talking about people within their families to love one another. We struggle with this all over the place, figuring out how to love one another. Why do we, There's all kinds of reasons we come up with to not love one another, such as because that person smells funny or that person is a sinner here or they do these particular things there, and it's like, and we don't like that. We come up with all of these reasons, but ultimately the Lord calls us through His Scripture and through His Word to love one another. And he's doing this, and he's speaking directly to husbands of families to strengthen and grow the family together. So he says this, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, and that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, as he who, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as the Lord does the church. So we are members of His holy body, of His flesh, and of His bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and that they too shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of us, each one of you in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a message that is absolutely necessary in today's culture that we need in the reestablishment of the home and the family and the institution of the family that God has created. In this day and age, we have divorce rate is off the charts, and families don't, husbands don't love their wives. People are leaving each other left and right and not staying committed to loving one another as is necessary for a family to grow and to prosper. That's exactly what is necessary. In the same way that the Messiah, the Lord, loves his, the, the congregation, the church, the, the called-out assembly, the children of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, He loves them and that they come in, and there's an implication here. As they come in, we're all unclean. We are all spotted. We are all blemished because of our sin and the things that we, that, that, that we commit. But it says here, that he might sanctify her and washing, the, the Lord himself washes his congregation with the water of his word. Washing of the water by the word, the word of God that teaches us and instructs us. And when we hear the word of God, we are washed clean, where it specifically then said there, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing without blemish. That assumes that the church as it came together in the first place, was spotted, was blemished, was striped, was full of sin and, and, and uncleanness. That's, that's why we look the way that we do, because sin has made us unclean. But the Word of God washes us clean, even though that we are like Jacob's flock, striped, spotted, speckled, and we are all unclean and we, we don't appear to be, you know, holy unto the Lord by our physical appearance. When we read the Word of God, when we are strengthened by His Word and by His commandments and follow after Him and seek after Him, showing that we love the Lord with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, strength, and pursue Him, then He washes us clean with His Word. And though those physical uh, uh, appearances that we see, that, that we might relate to and, and look like a certain way, spiritually we're washed clean and none of that matters because we are made clean and made without spot or blemish. So even though we might be Jacob's flock, we should always remember to not ridicule one another, not to sow discord with one another or insult one another because they look a certain way or act a certain way, because all who come into the faith are washed clean by His Word and appear without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, and that we are made clean. Though our sins might be as scarlet, He'll make them white as snow, now, remembering our sins no more. This is the testimony of us as believers, that we have been forgiven for our mistakes. We are all a part of Israel. We need to bring everybody into Israel. God has not replaced Israel with the church. In fact, this is the passage that parallels Israel and Israel's flock being striped and spotted and, and speckled with the church itself. They're one and the same. The called-out assembly, the first time that that is ever referenced, is of Israel. The church did not come to replace Israel. The church is Israel. We are all sons of the living God. We are all in the family of God, and that is Israel, who He has called out of the nations. We should 
look around, show our love and our compassion toward one another. Stop sowing discord among one another. And may we be washed in the world, in His Word weekly as we study the Scripture and hear from His Word. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your teaching and Your instruction this week. We thank You for the Torah portion and the story and testimony of Jacob and all of the things that he experienced in his life. Father, I pray that we would continue to bridge the gap, Lord, showing the connection between the testimony of Yeshua and the stories of old in the, in the Old Testament and in the Torah, Lord, that, Father, You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that Yeshua, our Savior, Lord, is the fulfillment of Torah and all of the stories and the commandments that are there. Not that they are done away with, Lord, but they are made perfect and mo- as they are most holy, Lord. So, Father, may we be encouraged each and every week when we study Your Word and Your instruction, and may we, may we walk uprightly in our most holy faith in everything that we do. May we learn to show the love and compassion that is needed toward our brethren, toward one another, and of course, toward you, our Heavenly Father, the Creator of heaven and earth. We love you, bless you, and thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.